I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Ivy Pakoda on her latest novel... These women. Ivy Pakoda is the author of The Art of Disappearing, Visitation Street, which was a Guardian and Amazon Best Book of 2013, and Wonder Valley, a Los Angeles Times Book Prize finalist and a winner of the Strand Critics Award. For many years, she was a world-ranked squash player. She teaches creative writing at the Lampart Studio in Skid Row, Los Angeles. She grew up in Brooklyn, but now currently lives in Los Angeles. And Ivy's latest book is another Los Angeles novel, These Women. Ivy, welcome back to Little Atoms. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, although I wish I could be doing this in person so badly. (laughs) I was going to say, before we talk about what this book is about, uh, this is your second Los Angeles novel now. Obviously, you, you wrote a book about Red Hook and, and Brooklyn. Also, what about Vegas? But I'm ignoring that one for the moment. Um, my question is, do you feel more like a Los Angeles writer now? Um, I both love and hate this question. Um, yeah, you know, I am from Brooklyn. I'm not one of those transplants. I'm not going to run them down, but I'm actually from Brooklyn. So writing a novel about Brooklyn was you know, a no brainer for me, you know, it's where I grew up and where I lived at the time. But I realized that I have to write about the place I live in, you know, so and my last two books have been in LA. And I still live here. I've been here for over 10 years, which is extraordinary. And I feel very close to the Los Angeles literary cultural scene, of which there is a very nice one. So for that reason, I definitely feel more like a Los Angeles novelist. I feel identified with the writers here. I feel I love the idea that, you know, we aren't quite as beholden to like the East Coast literary scene. I don't know if my feel like a Los Angeles novelist in terms of material, it just happens to be that I live here and I'm very comfortable about writing about the places where I live. I can't imagine. That's why we're not talking about that Vegas novel. I can't imagine why I wrote a novel about a place I didn't spend a lot of time or a novel about a place where I wasn't sort of enmeshed. So yes, I feel like a Los Angeles novelist, but if I were to move to Omaha, Nebraska for a few months, I probably would, you know, wind up writing about that. Um, So how would you describe these women then? 
Well, let's see. Lots of people do that for me. I guess it's not my strong suit um, because what I see in it, you know, it's so important to me to get it all out. I, uh, it's definitely a um, feminist serial killer novel in which I punched a serial killer sized hole in the narrative. I find serial killers a little bit boring. So this is a book about um, women who live in the wake of uh, violence, whose lives have been affected by a serial killer who's been preying on women in South LA. But it pivots entirely from focusing on this uh, man and to the voices of the women who he's harmed. And these are people we don't normally hear from in these kind of stories. You know, we still although crime writers are doing their best, live beholden somewhat to the industrial dead girl complex. So this is a book that is more interested with the lives of the victims and those around the criminal than with the crime and solving it. Serial killers, though, they're, you know, they're, they're big business. It's the, you know, the stuff of Netflix true crime dramas or, you know, a million books. What is it? I mean, this is a boring question and I'm sure you've answered many times, but it is a serial killer novel. So we should talk about, before we talk about the actual approach you've taken, what is it with serial killers? Why are we fascinated by it? I think there's a lot of answers to that question. The fact that, you know, I think people just generally are obsessed with things that are so gruesome they can't imagine it. I think that's, you know, I, I feel that, you know, I can't, it's just very hard to imagine being a serial killer. But I also think that, and this has been written about by people besides myself, I think people love to inflate the idea of a serial killer with a grandiosity. And we love to imagine, especially in fiction, even more than in real life, um, which I think is a problem with a lot of serial killer fiction, that this criminal has to be some grand mastermind who's eluding capture and doing all these nefarious, brilliant plotting. And the truth of the matter is they're not, you know, but we imagine that a serial killer is some incredibly smart, incredibly nefarious, incredibly dangerous plotter and schemer who's operating on this really high level simply because the person has escaped capture. You know, so we can't imagine that it's just the guy on the bus. And if you look at the Golden State Killer, which is a case that absolutely captivated California recently, and also, you know, Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, this guy, they couldn't catch him for decades. You know, he like, he raped and killed and like tortured people. And he was just some random dude. He was not doing anything particularly exciting with trying to evade the cops. But because they couldn't catch him, he gets so puffed up. And I think that's where this obsession comes with. We rebuild these people in the images to match the like huge amount of energy that's going into finding them. So if a million cops are looking for this guy, he's got to be as smart as a million cops put together. But it's not the case. And this, the story in this book is, is loosely based on a good example of one of those type of serial killers, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's a little, yes, absolutely. So The Grim Sleeper um, was a serial killer who was operating in LA over two time periods back in the 80s and 90s. And then he apparently went dormant for 15 years, although that's not, that's up for debate because he also, I mean, this is horrible to say, he worked at sort of a garbage disposal site. So it's possible um, he was just didn't have any bodies attached to his crimes for the decades that he was dormant. And then he sort of sprung back into action around the time I moved to LA. And his case is more interesting in the sense that the cops weren't paying as much attention as they should because a lot of the victims were either being assigned to other serial killers who were operating in South LA at the time, of which there were three that we know of, or these women um, were being sort of corralled into the 
chaos of the crack wars and the crack epidemic that was sweeping LA at the time. So their deaths were inconsequential. So he wasn't as, he, of course he evaded capture in the same way that, you know, many of these serial killers did to operate for so long, but also people weren't as inspired to track him down because of who his victims were. And indeed, another sort of trope of the the serial killer drama is, as you said, this brilliant serial killer doing battle of wits with a brilliant police officer. And, you know, these cases are the sort of defining moments of this particular fictional police officer's life. But uh, one of the things you talk about in this book, one of the things that's sort of a feature of this book is that actually these cases are a real pain in the ass for police, which is why they they try to deny for as long as possible in this yeah. case that there's a serial killer operating. Yeah, it's a total pain in the ass. I mean, there's a whole complex... Of, first of all, the police work's a pain in the ass when you have a serial killer because there's a lot of this stuff you have to pull from files and go through everything to make sure you didn't miss other people. And it's a media nightmare because, you know, as we just discussed, people are like, unduly scared. Like, they're, you know, I remember when I was growing up, there was a bunch of serial killers running rampant Long Island and stuff, which is adjacent to Brooklyn, for those of you who don't know. And, you know, people were, like, scared to go out. And the chances of being killed by a serial killer are fairly, you know, minor. But it does sort of inspire the public into a frenzy. And then, you know... And people get mad at the cops because they can't catch the detection. They can't catch this guy. Like, it's not that easy. And then there's this cottage industry that pops up around serial killers, which I'm fascinated by, of profilers and geo-profilers and internet sleuths. I mean, there have been a lot of documentaries about um, internet sleuthing to catch killers recently. And it's fascinating. People who have a lot of time and they spend a lot of time doing, you know, police work online. So all, the minute you say serial killer, this entire like engine rumbles to life from like the public like outcry and anger and and like the public loves to be scared too. I think of serial killers; it's very exciting. I think, and then um then to these internet sleuths, and I don't know. There's a great documentary called "Don't with Cats." Um, have you seen this? Did this make I'm aware of it. I haven't seen. Yeah. It. It's just a fascinating look at, you know, um, amateur police work. But, you know, the minute they say serial killer, you're getting this world, you know, and psychics are coming out of the woodwork and everyone whose kid died in some comparable way wants part of it. So it's a big nightmare for cops to have a serial killer on their hands, aside from the murders. When we spoke about Wonder Valley, we talked about Skid Row in Los Angeles, also sort of areas outside of Los Angeles. These women is is set more in a sort of much more localized area of Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. Looking at it on a map, perhaps we could say sort of like North, South, Central, Jefferson. What is this area actually like? Well, it's my home, so it's you know I live there. Um, I live on the northern edge of West Adams, which is a giant neighborhood in Los Angeles. That's sort of, so back in uh, the 50s and earlier, the Los Angeles city planners did this terrible thing where they prohibited people of color to own homes. And they lifted that prohibition on uh, black home ownership in this area, West Adams and South Central LA. And so a lot of black people bought very nice homes here in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Craftsman homes, which are sort of like, okay, so this neighborhood is where they film a lot of movies that you've seen. I mean, it's where the Six Feet Under house is in here. The um, American Horror Story Mansion is here. If you've seen 20th Century Women, you've seen this neighborhood in a hundred movies and TV shows. It's beautiful old houses, but the problem was 
when they wanted to build the 10 freeway, which goes from Los Angeles, goes across America through Los Angeles and connects to the beach, they decided to put it right in the middle of West Adams because this is where black people lived and they decided to mess with our neighborhood and they cut it off from the rest of the city. So it became a little derelict and it became where nobody wanted to live and it fell onto hard times. And um, if you look at it, it's very funny. When I lived on the East Coast and I'd see pictures of LA and South Central, you know, you see like, you know, Boys in the Hood or whatever it is, whatever movie. But it looks so nice, you know? Yeah, the- I was going to say the, se- the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, my mom and I was joking about that. Mm. We're like, look at those like freestanding houses with a yard and a palm tree and an orange tree. There's just no services. It's and- not like yeah. projects. No, not in the slightest. I mean, there are, no, it's not like housing projects or council estates or whatever. Mm. Um, It's self-standing bungalow homes. I mean, they're beautiful, but it's, you know, it's less dangerous than it was. But people used to never go south of the 10, the south of the freeway, you know. And when I first moved here to this neighborhood, I live north of the 10 by two blocks. But my friends who live south of the 10, as of three years ago, they couldn't get food delivered. Like people, it was just like a, a barrier, you know, an emotional barrier. Like everything is gentrifying. But it's a beautiful neighborhood. Jefferson Park, which you mentioned, is one of the nicest neighborhoods in L.A., I think. It's all these gorgeous bungalows and really landmark craftsman homes. Um, They have designated a historic preservation overlay zone, which means there can't be any development of high rises or apartment buildings. So it's completely flat in terms of architecture. So it's a beautiful place to live, except all the stuff that happened around it because people didn't care, like freeways and it's a food desert. There's big box stores. There's not a lot of like good grocery stores. You know, there's tire shops and it's interesting because it's beautiful, but also lacks sort of, except for people are, are, you know, working hard to rebuild the community, but it does lack some of the services that, uh, you would expect for you know a major city so to what extent is there's what one of the characters that we'll talk about later i think morella perhaps um touches on this most of all but to what extent is gentrification an issue in that area now so yeah i was going to say about you know the houses they look great like i, I went on to i was you know exactly thinking of of boys in the hood and they do all the characters in boys in the hood live in houses that i would like to live in they all look really nice and i i went on google maps and i looked at um 29th place which is a um a significant Beautiful. street in this book and, and there is literally a two-story uh red house on 29th place um to what extent has gentrification started to creep into that area I mean, hugely, but it doesn't look any different. So yes, it's no longer a poor neighborhood. I mean, for instance, when I moved here in uh, to this neighborhood in six years ago, we were looking at a house on 29th place that was $500,000. And now those houses are a million dollars. So even in six years, it's changed dramatically, but it wouldn't have looked much different. It always looks like that. Um, that's the funny thing. It just, the houses might be redone or remodeled inside, or but it's always had that sort of, space and light and the houses that they didn't build new houses um gentrification has changed oh gosh it's changed the home prices um it's changed a little bit of the makeup of the community but it still feels very diverse my blog is incredibly diverse the house to my right was purchased by um an El salvadoran family to my left as a korean family across the filipino family you know it's really different um from the rest of la so gentrification has crept in but it hasn't ruined the neighborhood in the way that it has maybe in another neighborhood that i wrote about the arts district which made it completely unlivable unaffordable fancy we don't have fancy restaurants or bars or boutique stores i mean it's very 
very community oriented. A lot of our new restaurants do serve the community. So it's not a problem yet. It could happen. Um, It's happening in other fringe areas of West Adams. But in the part I wrote about, it's still quite nice. And indeed, the, the, you know, the part you write about is in that community and is, is, you know, fundamentally a community of sex workers and people that are adjacent to sex workers. How much were you able to sort of research that community, talk to people? And what I'm interested in, I guess, most of all, is this, the idea that there is in the book, there is sort of loose knit support networks around that industry you know for instance what one of the main characters dorian she runs a a food stall that is is you know is predominantly servicing the um sex workers so a lot of that is more from my experience working in skid row where to go back to your question about researching sex workers um i didn't interview any sex workers for this book specifically but because i work in skid row and some of my or teach volunteer in skid row some of the people in my writing workshop are sex workers and i don't talk to them about sex work um but i do know that that's what they do i've seen them doing it i've actually saw one in a documentary about skid row i didn't you know it was a little shocking uh, cuz i didn't know not shocked but surprising um so i am very aware of their lives when they're not doing their sex working when i know that they're writers and artists and you know have other lives so i i'm that's how i and also i lived in amsterdam for 7 years and you know when you live in amsterdam and i had a lot of dutch friends you know some of your friends are sex workers or were former sex workers not quite in the red lights but more high class or um elite sex workers so and i know these people as people not as prostitutes so i am able to access the lifestyle that these people have outside of what, what how we label them. So it's, I'm quite comfortable writing about stuff like that. You know, I don't really, I sort of made it up whether or not there'd be a restaurant where clientele like this hang out, but you, in Skid Row, I do know that there are places that are very safe havens for women who are prostitutes where they can get a hot meal or, you know, be safe. I know that I do see certain cafes in West Adams, where, you know, you'll see I, this, this ramen noodle shop opened the other day, uh, right before the pandemic, and it's right off the 10 freeway. And there's a sign that says we're open till four in the morning. And I thought, well, why on earth would they be open till four in the morning? Nothing in this neighborhood is open till four in the morning, except for one 24 hour taco place. And I just thought this must be, you know, a place that understands that there's a clientele that is up and at them at four in the morning. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Ivy Pakoda, and we're talking about her latest novel, These Women. And Ivy, I want to talk about at least some of the characters, some of the women that feature in the book. The book is it's, it's structured, it's told from the perspective of each of these women in turn. Just before we do, again, just we can't get away from the idea of, of, of the serial killer, but this is a, a book where... The story of the serial killer is very much in the background. We're looking at it from the perspective of these women that are affected by that case in in different ways. But the book still does function as as a thriller. As a, you know, it it keeps you gripped. There's clues dropped throughout the book. You're still sort of wanting to know who it is, and you know, obviously, eventually, it's it's revealed who it is. So I just wanted to talk about any challenges of of plotting that serial killer story in the background. Yeah, uh, it's hugely challenging for me because that's not my strength as a writer. Like, if you set out and told me to write a thriller or, you know, a mystery, my first novel that got any attention, Visitation Street, I didn't think it was a mystery at all or a crime novel. I thought it was an exploration of my Brooklyn neighborhood. And then Wonder Valley... And then, but it got all, I mean, Visitation Street got a bunch of attention as a thriller or a mystery, and much to my surprise. And, you know, Wonder Valley, my editor just said, make something disappear at the beginning, like you did in uh, Visitation Street, and find out what happens at the end, and then you'll have what they call a mystery. I thought, okay. But in this one, it's a little tricky because I'm actually not very comfortable with plot mechanics. You know, for everyone else's novel, I'm a genius when it comes to plot mechanics. Like, I'll fix your novel, but mine, I don't know how to do it. So um, I had to build in the engine of the detective who is, uh, you know, my editor, it was a new editor. He said, let's have a detective. And I said, gosh, no, like that's for somebody else. Like leave that to Michael Connelly or, you know, Laura Littman or whatever to have someone who can investigate crimes. That's not for me. But when I realized that this detective could be a woman and she could have the same, all, all the women in the book aren't being listened to and they're not being believed. And when this detective could have the same experience as a woman in a workforce in a place that I imagine being a you know petite Latina woman, she would be disparaged and disregarded. I realized that I could build the plot of her looking for the serial killer around the workplace uh, harassment she gets. And so I wasn't so good at like doing the sort of how are we going to figure out who the killer is, but I was able to structure it around no one's believing her, no one's believing her, no one's believing her, and how would she go about getting her story heard? So that's how I did it. Um, I was not particularly confident or competent at being like, okay, we have to, you know, 
have red herrings here. Or and I think I kind of hid it well because I wasn't particularly interested in doing it. So I didn't make it a prominent part of the story. I think what what's really fascinating is, and I, I love the book. I think it's a really great idea and it works really well. And the only slight complaint I would have was as soon as I finished it, and this is not a complaint about this story, but as soon as I finished it, I thought, now I want to read the next in a series of books about Esmeralda Perry. Yeah, so um, I want to read that too. Um, <laughs> Someone um, else can write it. <laughs> well, I didn't write it. Apparently I made a mistake. Well, I didn't make a mistake. I didn't know this. Um, so I sold the film rights to this, which means that I sold the rights to her character or something. So I'm not sure. There's like some issue with me writing about her. Like if I write about it, I don't know. Like I have to figure this out because I do want to write about her. But um, but thank you. Um, that's a good complaint to have. I'm going to take, mm. I'm going to, I was a little worried. <laughs> like I think that that's a good complaint. Um, I do want to, you know, she, be, she started off as the most difficult character for me to write. And then it became so much fun to write her. Yeah, she's actually based some, on a someone a story someone told me about a, a reporter who's sort of similar to her, and I wonder if that reporter will ever read this book and know. <laughs> Let's talk about a couple of the other. So I mentioned Dorian, who's the first. Well, no, not strictly the first woman, because also laced throughout the book is a, a sort of smaller overarching narrative, um, beginning in the past, Ophelia. Mm-hmm. Um, who is a, a woman from the streets who survived being killed by the serial killer back in the day and oh. then he stopped and nobody has ever listened to her about it. Now she's she's the only one of these characters that's also done in the in, in the first person. I wanted to ask why you made that different stylistic decision for her. So two reasons. One, it was just a I hate this expression. It was a writing exercise when I was stuck. You know, I just didn't know exactly what to do. It was when I was debating whether or not to put the detective in the book as a character. There was always a detective talking to people. And just while I was weighing that out, I this I started writing this sort of exercise in the first person of um, Ophelia. And I thought that it was really important to really give voice to one of the women who really is disregarded in our, in, one, in the book and also in the world. Like I wanted to make her voice really jump off the page. There's a terrific documentary by Nick Broomfield, who whom I love, who's probably more well-known over by you guys than here, um, about the Grim Sleeper case. And, you know, it's very funny, this erudite, posh Englishman going down into um, South Central. He has a woman who helps him, like his Dr. Watson, like escorting him around. And her voice was so incredible. She was a prostitute in South LA, and she kind of explains to him the lay of the land and what he's up against and how the prostitution game works. And I just thought her voice was so brilliant and so something we don't really see in fiction and don't listen to in the real world that I wanted to honor that because that's really how I got interested in the story was by listening to this woman's voice in a documentary. So that's sort of why it's in the first person. It's sort of a nod to that. Such a great person. She's fantastic. Dorian, I mentioned uh, we were going to talk about, and, and she's the you know this is the first character in mm-hmm. the in the sort of six larger chapters. Um, her daughter, Alicia, was the last person to be killed by the serial killer and was not a prostitute. All the others were. Yeah, I sort of, I, I wanted, it's funny, this serial killer in my book goes dormant too, you know, so um, I wanted to sort of give him a reason for that and he made a mistake. 
So that's why he does that. But Dorian, who is Leisha's mother, um, she was the hardest character to write ultimately. The story kicks off with her. I thought it'd be quite easy, but as I went to revise it, it was really complicated because she's a stagnant person. She's sort of arrested in this moment with her daughter's death and she's stuck in this restaurant that she never wanted to own. You know, her husband's died and and she's, you know, middle-aged and sort of lonely and there wasn't a lot of movement in her section, but it opens the book. So I had to, it was really, really difficult to like get her right because you know her grief is stagnant and she's running in place so it was very complicated and tricky to write that i found i you know it's funny everyone always asks me well why do you feel so confident writing you know morella or not morella um juliana who's um a latina woman or philia and i said well i just feel comfortable i can sort of imagine them but like the middle-aged white woman was so hard for me i don't know why it was like really challenging Juliana, who you've just mentioned, and Morella. I don't really want to get into Morella's relation yeah. with other characters in the book for um, for, for yeah. plot reasons. But um, she, I said I wanted to talk about this idea. of We talked about the idea of gentrification earlier on. And the central feature of Morella's story is she basically steals artwork, fundamentally, yeah. photographs, a phone with photographs from Juliana. And I wondered if, you know, this was like a sort of deliberate comment on you know, the encroaching gentrification of, as you mentioned earlier, the... Um, the arts district. The arts district, yeah. yeah. I, it's not really a comment on that. Well, you know, okay, so Morella's an artist, or she's gone to art school, right? And she's a terrible artist in my mind. I just, like... Yeah. I, I, Her I, art I, is terrible. It's horrible. And, like, I don't mean it to be disparaging, but, you know, there's sort of self-aggrandizing level of performance art and video art installations. There's a lot of bad video art and performance art. That's not to say that all of it is bad. Um, but she's really struggling. And she is trying to be relevant, but she's irrelevant in a certain way. But there is something about her that is incredibly important, but she can't access it. She doesn't understand it herself. And when she sees Juliana's work, a switch sort of goes off in her head that this is the thing her work is missing, but she doesn't know why. But, you know, I did want to talk a little bit about cultural appropriation and how easy it is, especially for, you know, affluent or more affluent. She's not particularly affluent. She is white. Um, people to borrow from others without not even asking permission, but without even, you know, acknowledging them. I think that happens a lot. You know, I teach in Skid Row and so easy. I mean, I edit novels and I get every novel from Skid Row that someone's written, not from Skid Row, about Skid Row. And I sometimes get a little worried about how disposable we take other people's stories to be. And, you know, it's very important when you're dealing with people who have limited means to not trample on their story or to not make it your own. And Morella is a perfect example of that sort of disregard. Like she has no idea what a terrible thing she's doing by taking these photographs. She just thinks, well, I'm an artist. I work with found objects, which is one of my favorite <laughs> expressions. Um, she's doing like in her, in her mind, it's just like doing bricolage, you know, that fancy word for like you putting together things from various aspects of culture, but it's not her right to do that. You know? One of my favorite bits is where she's explaining that to Essie when she doesn't realize she's being interrogated. 
I know. I love that too. Thank you. I, I shouldn't say I love my own work, but I do love that scene. And it just sort of reminds, I took a class in, in, way back in the dark ages in college called Ma- Mass Media and Culture, where we studied bricolage. And I just thought this is such a fancy overblown word for borrowing from other people and not acknowledging it. <laughs> okay, to finish off, can I get you to read us a bit? Absolutely. And I'm going to read, it was just a great segue. I'm going to read from Juliana, who we didn't talk about too much. Juliana is a young woman who is living in um, this neighborhood of West Adams. And she is kind of involved in a world that she doesn't quite acknowledge is actually the sex trade, but she has a very deep inner life. And so um, this is just the first time you meet her. So I don't need to say too much. This is the opening of her chapter. Click. There's Kathy sitting on a dirty leather couch with the stuffing popping through. There she is, leaning back, arms thrust out like she's beckoning the world, turning that couch into her throne. There she is, five years younger, skin good, hair sleek, skirt so short you can quick glimpse her red thong. There she is, cigarette in one hand, glass of something, maybe Hennessy in the other. There she is, wildcat eyes, snake mouth. There she is frozen in time, preserved perfect in five megapixels. It was Kathy, the Ragin' Cajun, who first took Juliana downtown and showed her the bars and illegal clubs just off Olympic, who introduced her to the man who said Juliana was pretty enough to model, the man who promised he'd turn her into South LA's Cindy Crawford. He didn't know, and Juliana didn't tell him, that she liked the other side of the camera. It was Kathy who helped Juliana get her first job, waiting tables at Sam's Hofbrau, which turned out not to be a beer hall, but a strip club. It was Kathy who encouraged Juliana to try out dancing, encouraged her to get on stage. It was Kathy who turned Juliana into Jujubee. Jujubee is a nice name to say when you're high. Nice to say quickly. Nice to call out across a club. Nice to let buzz around inside your head. Nice to tell the guy who wants more than a lap dance. It's a nice name that allows you to escape who you really are. A name that allows you to do things that a Juliana wouldn't do. A few years after Juliana started dancing at Sam's, Kathy took a turn into a rougher line of work. Tried her luck on the streets instead of the bars. She said she needed more cash for her habit, her kids, her brother locked up somewhere, and his kids. And she and Juliana went their separate ways. It's been 24 hours since the news rolled down Western that Kathy was dead up in an empty lot on 27th place. Juliana had been getting ready for work at the Fast Rabbit when she got a call from Coco, who heard from Raina, who heard from Marisol, who heard from Sandra, whose mom worked at Moon Pie Pizza a block from 27th. So it had to be true. Kathy had her throat slit, was suffocated and tossed. The news was like a punch in the stomach. So hard and fast, it knocked Juliana to the couch. More than a day later, she still hasn't left the apartment. She hasn't slept and it's coming up on evening again. It started as an informal wake for Kathy, a gathering of Coco and the rest of the girls who'd been taken down to the 77th the night Juliana wound up at Southwest and was surrendered to Dorian. And how the fuck Dorian had turned up at that particular moment is a mystery Juliana can't quite puzzle. The woman has a knack, she'll grant her that. The girls swarmed the apartment where several of them crashed from time to time. They told Juliana since she'd escaped being locked up. The Layla was on her. And in no time, Raquel was there with the goods. Then it was 2 a.m., then 4 a.m. Then most of the girls had gone home or gone to bed. Only Juliana stayed awake. The sun came up a lifetime ago, and now it's already sliding away. A whole day has unfurled on the TV. The wind started a fire up on Mulholland that is sweeping down the hills near the Quenga Pass. 
People had to drive through a tunnel of fire on the 405 to get to work. The sky black with smoke, the hills lava red. The pictures on the TV looked like something from Mars, an alien invasion. Juliana thought she'd been tripping. So I've been talking to Ivy Pakoda. We've been talking about her latest novel, These Women, which is out in the UK from Faber. <laughs> Ivy, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.